Good morning. Let's turn in our Bibles, if you will, to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Yes, we're going to look at Galatians 2. So if you have a, um, a paper Bible, put a finger in, in uh, Galatians 2 and turn to Acts 13. If you have a, um, a digital uh, Bible on your phone, I don't know what you do. Someone tell me after the meeting. If ever there was an ideal church in the Apostle Paul's time, it was the assembly in Antioch. Consider this. They enjoyed a concentration of gifted teachers. They experienced the direct leading of the Holy Spirit. They were ascending church. They sent, they sent missionaries to regions in Asia and Europe where the gospel had never been preached before. So um, let's, uh, let's read in Acts 13 and verse 1. Now in the church that it was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away on their first missionary journey. So here, here's Ascending Church, and they're sending out uh, missionaries to the far reaches of, um, uh, of civilization. So they return in Acts 14 and verse 26. From there they, that is uh, Paul and Barnabas, sailed to Antioch, where they'd been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and all that he had opened and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. How wonderful to have a peaceful, protected fellowship, safe from the attacks of uh, God's enemies. But wait, let's continue reading. And certain men, that's um, Acts 15, and certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. What's going on in our assembly? Here we, we've enjoyed such benefits, uh, such blessings, and... Now there's dissension, now there's, um, now there's uh, argument, there's strife. They would say later of these, um, um, of these people who came into the assembly that they came from Jerusalem and troubled the saints with words, unsettling their souls, that is, um, upsetting or plundering the souls of these believers in this peaceful Antioch assembly. So, um, so we read that the church in Antioch 
determined that they're going to send Paul and Barnabas and others to go up to Jerusalem. And here's where we pick up in Galatians chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. To whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the, to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. Paul, in uh, verse 1, doesn't say what he's basing the 14 years on. Was it his conversion? Was it his previous visit to Jerusalem? The point he's making is that it's been a long time. He went up by revelation. We read in verse 2, in the previous chapter, we saw that um, Lord Jesus gave his gospel to the Apostle Paul by direct revelation. And so here he's, um, he's giving him direction to go to, uh, to Jerusalem. But we read in Acts 15, in um, verse 2, that the church, um, the church determined that Paul and Barnabas should go up to Jerusalem. So which was it? Was it the Lord personally, or was it the church? It was both. <laughs> uh, God told Peter, uh, God, God told Paul, go, and God told the church, Send Peter, send Paul, I'm going to get that wrong, send Paul to, uh, to Jerusalem. So it was both. And the, um, the purpose of the, the visit, the purpose of this delegation to Jerusalem was to settle this question, to settle the question of circumcision. Is circumcision required for salvation? Was there, um, was there any doubt in the apostle's mind about the validity of the gospel that he preached? In other words, was that part of the question? 
was uh, Paul trying to settle the content of the gospel? Well, no. He, in fact, he said earlier in this letter, he wrote, There are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. All right? There was no question in Paul's mind about what the true gospel is. So uh, to whom did he want to settle this question? What, uh, what, was, what was he trying to solve here? Well, it was the saints in Galatia because the false teachers had upset them, had um, unsettled their souls. So he wants, he wants relief for these dear ones in Galatia. But to do so, the apostle had to take the fight to Jerusalem. He's going to take this battle to, uh, to Jerusalem. What apprehensions or fears could have entered the apostle's heart? The purpose of his trip to Jerusalem was to refute or discredit the uh, false teachers. They claimed, these false teachers claimed to have authority from Jerusalem, from the leaders there. What if Paul's mission failed? The gospel would not fail. It's, um, it stands fast. The cross, it stands unchanged. But its uh, faithful preaching in the churches of Galatia would suffer if Paul's mission failed. So what, what are some of the things that are going on through uh, in Paul's heart as he, as he prepares for this meeting? We can see something in the determination that Paul had and his commitment when we think about the distance that it is from Antioch to Jerusalem. And I, uh, the internet offered two distances. They said it's 300 miles. Maybe that's a, a flight from Antioch to Jerusalem. Um, but uh, other sources said 500. So I'm going to choose 400, 400 miles. Okay. What is the distance to Los Angeles? It's 400 miles. About the same that we're considering here. How long does it take to get to Los Angeles? Three hours? <laughs> okay. It takes, uh, it takes about an hour flight. Is that right? I haven't been to LA lately. Um, but if you drive, it takes seven hours. Six, okay. So it's not a big deal if I want to visit relatives in LA or I want to go to Disneyland, that's fine. But what if you had to walk? Puts things in a little different perspective. At 25 miles per day, walking about 10 hours plus rest, it would take 16 days to go from uh, here to LA or from Antioch to Jerusalem. So it represents a major commitment on the part of um, Paul and Barnabas and the, um, 
the others that they brought. And um, it seems that they did walk because uh, Acts 15.3 says, so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria. Those are on, those are on the way. That's not a sea route. All right. Um, and so I'd add to that that they probably had speaking engagements at night. So they'd walk during the day and then they'd speak to, um, to the believers at night. But Paul and Barnabas and Titus were people with family obligations. They had um, uh, health issues. They had ministry opportunities. They had things on their schedule. So for them to drop things that they had going on and walk to Jerusalem for this meeting represents a very large commitment on their part. But, uh, but so they did. Their mission was to preserve the purity of the preaching of the gospel. And we see in um, Galatians 2.2 uh, 2, that they communicated, Paul communicated the gospel, which he preaches, present tense, he continued preaching after the, the council, um, preached to the, gospel, to the uh, Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, who were those of reputation? They were probably the leaders, the elders, the apostles in that Jerusalem assembly. Why? Why would, uh, why would Paul um, go behind closed doors and talk with the leaders privately as a courtesy to them? Because they don't want to address the whole church with... Uh, with a doctrine that's going to potentially cause conflict without the full backing of the Jerusalem leaders. So what, they want, what Paul wanted to do was to work out the questions and the difficulties that the leadership would have so that they would present a, a um, united uh, presentation. They'd have the, the, uh, the apostles full backing. It was a courtesy. Titus was the test case for Paul's doctrine. Paul, uh, Paul is asserting that the gospel does not include circumcision. And here, um, Titus, an uncircumcised Gentile, was a risk that Paul took. He could have infuriated, he could have inflamed, he could have antagonized the, uh, the Judaizers, the um, um, even the believers who held to some of the Jewish traditions, he could have, uh, he could have really stirred up trouble. And so he was, um, he was taking a risk. Paul could have asked Titus to submit to this minor surgery, but he purposely did not. Paul would later circumcise Timothy, but he did so to gain a greater credibility among those uh, Jewish listeners uh, to whom Timothy was talking, but not in any way to submit to the Judaizers who said that circumcision was required. Titus was an ideal test case. He was an uncircumcised Gentile, truly converted to the Lord Jesus. And Titus' acceptance by the Jerusalem church would strike a fatal blow to those uh, Judaizers 
in Antioch. Paul was daring and courageous. He was willing to take risks, which really weren't risks, taken in the confidence of the Lord Jesus Christ. He carried that, uh, that love, that uh, devotion, that confidence in the Lord. So uh, the meeting is underway. Peter supports Paul's assertion that, um, uh, that circumcision is not required. In Acts 15, we pick up reading in verse 4. And when they had come to Jerusalem, that is, Paul and Barnabas, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and include uh, Titus in that as well. And they reported all the things, all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Circumcision and the law are rarely separated. You require circumcision, you're going to require obedience to the Ten Commandments and the 600 other commandments in, uh, in Scripture. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter, and when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. The uh, Judaizers, when they saw Peter rise to his feet, probably thought, okay, here's our champion. He's going to, uh, um, he's going to tell it uh, like it is and uh, that circumcision is required. But Peter is probably referring to his preaching to Cornelius and his family. And uh, Cornelius was saved. He was a Gentile. And... Um, um, not only was he saved, he believed on the Lord Jesus, he was saved, but the Lord sent the Holy Spirit to, on, uh, on them as a confirmation that they had, they had truly believed. So uh, Peter quickly disappointed these, um, these Judaizers. Peter goes on to exhort the, um, those in the assembly he says in verse 10, Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. I, uh, this, um, this is very precious. In verse 9, that God makes no distinction between us and them. He's talking about the circumcised believers and the uncircumcised believers. There is no distinction between us. But uh, it's a lovely condescension, it's lovely grace on Peter's part that he says at the end of verse 9, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. We would expect Peter to say, they'll be saved in the same manner as we. 
but he really puts the Gentiles first. He says, uh, they're gonna be, we're going to be saved just like the Gentiles were saved. Nevertheless, Peter seems to forget this cultureless gospel, as we will see in our, um, in our study next week. What's the, what's the history behind, um, behind this? Paul um, clues us into this in verse 4, Galatians 2, verse 4. And this occurred. What's the this there? It's the apostles' delegation to Jerusalem from Antioch. This occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. He calls them um, false brethren. False is their nature. They are pseudo. Actually, in the original, it's uh, pseudo. They're pseudo brothers. They're fakes. They're pretenders. They're not real. They're counterfeit. They're imposters. These are not only, these are not misguided people because we talk to people who um, are sincere and they're just untaught, they're misguided, they, uh, they're not saved, um, but uh, they're willing to, to study, they're willing to investigate God's, uh, God's truth. These, uh, these brothers were not. They were not misguided, they were malicious, they were predatory. And uh, let's look at an image. I, uh, here's, a, here's an image of a false brother right here. There he is. What do you see? I see a wolf in sheep's clothing. That's not a very uh, nice looking sheep there. Okay. This is a false sheep. This is a false brother. Paul describes their entrance... Um, he says that um, they were introduced secretly um, in the meeting. They, they came in by stealth to spy out. So um, traitors invited these, uh, these men in to, uh, to disrupt. The word by stealth indicates that they were infiltrating the meeting to disrupt the faith, to disrupt the peace and to overthrow the faith of the believers. Their goal? Let's enslave these free people. They, um, they're far too much enjoying the liberty that they have in Christ. Let's, um, let's give them some of the heartache that we have. Let's put them under the bondage that we suffer. I can't stand to see people enjoying their, uh, their faith. Okay? We see, we see that in the thief of John 10, who came to steal and to kill and to destroy. It's important to realize the nature of false brethren. They, they won't be reasoned with. They're, they have an agenda. They're going to push it, and they're not satisfied until you are obeying the law, Old Testament law. Jesus promises liberty, freedom from the oppressive law-keeping. He gave this invitation in Matthew 11. He said, come to me, 
All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Laboring under what? Laboring, I believe, under the law. They were trying to satisfy these impossible commandments. Um, God intended his word to show us what sinners we are, and um, people labor under those thinking that they're going to be saved through the law. That's labor. That's, heavy. That's a heavy load. Jesus said, I will give you rest. I will set you free. I will give you liberty. The hymn writer wrote this. He said, by God's word, at last my sin I learned. Then I trembled at the law I'd spurned. To my guilty soul, imploring turned to Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. I want to ask you each a very personal question. Have you found that liberty at the cross of Calvary? Because if you have not, I repeat the Lord's invitation. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's a promise. It's an invitation the Lord extends to you on the authority of his word uh, this, this morning. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Faith in Christ plus, you fill in the blank, plus anything is a different gospel. The gospel that we know is um, from uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, a summary that Paul gave the Corinthians that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Add to it, subtract from it, it's a different gospel. This is, um, this is a good summary of the gospel. Paul said that a different gospel is anathema. It's destined for destruction. It's cursed. And so is the preacher and those who follow him. They are cursed as well by, by following this different gospel. At issue here was not Jew and Gentile. It was not circumcised and uncircumcised. It was liberty in Christ and bondage under the law. The Judaizers' goal was to have all believers circumcised and um, submitting under the Old Testament law. The apostles resisted these uh, enemies of the cross in verse 5. He says, uh, we did not yield submission even for an hour. So within an hour, the apostles were able to realize who the fake brethren were. Thank the Lord for men and women who recognize error in our meeting and are willing to challenge and to confront. In our meeting years ago, there was a man who came in, uh, sat through the morning meetings, and then in the afternoon he was, um, he was presenting this false gospel that you must obey God's law to be saved. And so um, we challenged him, and uh, he was not willing to back down from that. He said, well, you know, I have my right to, 
to preach. And so uh, he was shown the door. Um, we said, uh, well, you have to leave. <clears throat> and I thought that was a very, um, very appropriate uh, action uh, on our part. It was um, courteous, but it was very firm. You need to leave because you're not welcome here. You're presenting a different gospel, which is accursed. All right? What was at stake at Antioch? The believer's joy and peace in the God of grace, their confidence in not being condemned by the law, and um, also at stake was the continuation of the gospel accurately preached. We need to discern the real believer from the fake. And uh, in order to do that, we, uh, we can ask diagnostic questions like, if you were to die tonight, would you know for sure that you're going to heaven? Whether the person answers yes or no, the second question is, if you were to die tonight and stand before the Lord and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you tell him? This uh, offers the person an opportunity to uh, tell what his hope is for, for glory. Is, it, is he trusting in the Lord Jesus? Is he trusting in Jesus plus something else? And so we should use diagnostic questions in talking with others to determine whether they're true or false. Paul was uncompromising in his commitment to keep the gospel proclamation pure. His goal was to continue the truth of the gospel, that is, the true preaching of the gospel. We, um, we know of Paul's care, his, um, his overriding concern for the believers in the churches. He said, he wrote the uh, Corinthians about the same time. He said, um, he listed a, a, a lot of adversities that he'd endured. And then besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. So he had this... Um, this drive, this, uh, this desire for the welfare of these believers. What moved Paul to go to Jerusalem? It was God's personal revelation. It was God's uh, direction through the leaders in the church at Antioch. But add to these Paul's personal concern for God's people. And there's a wonderful lesson in guidance here. You're looking for guidance in some action that you're wanting to take. Well, look for God's direction. Look for his, um, his guidance. Does he do that by revelation? No. Today, he does that by illumination. And by that, we mean that we take God's word and we ask him for guidance and we read his word and we wait for the Holy Spirit to illumine those passages that pertain to, uh, to what I'm looking for guidance for. Okay? Look for God's leading. Look for the leader's confirmation. We saw that with the church at Antioch. They confirmed, yes, um, go to Jerusalem. And then the third thing is um, 
a personal desire. You personally desire to, to do this. And um, it was certainly Paul's case. It's marvelous when these, these um, directions uh, line up. But we should not allow our personal desire to go ahead of God's direction and uh, confirmation by leaders of our church. Okay, so how did the church in Jerusalem receive the uh, delegation from Antioch? We read Paul's account of this in verse 6, starting in verse 6. But from whom, uh, but from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. Those who seem to be something were James and Peter and, Paul and uh, John. They were the other disciples. Um, in Jerusalem. Whatever they were, Paul says, well, what they were, were uh, followers of the Lord Jesus during his earthly ministry. But Paul doesn't recognize this as an authority for today. Yes, you, um, you were given special privilege, but that doesn't give you extra weight as, uh, as an apostle. And Paul says, why? He says, God shows personal favoritism to no man. He doesn't respect, accept, or show favor to a person on the basis of external distinctions or outward privileges. And so neither did Paul add uh, respect to them for this. Paul wasn't disrespecting them. They were obviously the church's leaders. They were those of reputation back in uh, verse 2. But he showed himself to be independent of them. He says, the Jerusalem apostles added nothing to me. They added nothing to my authority as an apostle. They added nothing to my message, uh, this, uh, this gospel of grace. It was a wonderful outcome of their meeting that the Jerusalem leaders acknowledged Paul's gospel as complete. They acknowledged it as lacking nothing. How great is your Jesus? To Paul, James, and Peter, and John were as nothing next to the Lord Jesus. That's what he's saying here. He's saying... Um, uh, whoever you are, um, those who seem to be something, well, you're nothing compared to the Lord Jesus. Is there a greater than Jesus Christ in your life? Is there a movie star, a psychological expert, a scientist, a sports personality who looms larger than Jesus in your life? Or is the Lord Jesus more authoritative, more powerful, more to be respected than these, uh, these earthly people? If you had a personal meeting with a national politician, would you remember 
in talking with him that the Lord Jesus is infinitely worthier of your devotion and attention. Well, for Paul, the Lord Jesus was uh, so much larger, so much greater than these, even the apostles at Jerusalem. The leaders there in Jerusalem saw three things in Paul's ministry. In verse 7, they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to Paul, just as uh, for the uncircumcised uh, was to Peter. Second, they saw that God was working effectively in Paul to the uncircumcised, as he did to Peter, to the circumcised. Theirs was the same gospel, but to different parts of society. And third, the leaders saw that God empowered and equipped Paul for this ministry. That's what um, that word grace means in verse 9. They perceived the grace that had been given to me. It's marvelous, really, after so many years to find James and Peter and John working together as pillars in the church. They bore the weight of responsibility in the church at Jerusalem. And um, here, here they are, still laboring together. Their response in verse, uh, verse 9 was that they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. It wasn't an official commendation, but it was a, an expression of their approval and their loving interest in the work there among the Gentiles. The, um, the leaders had one requirement. They said um, in verse 10, we desire that you should remember the poor. And uh, Paul was um, very eager to do so. It, um, it kind of raises a question in my mind. Was there something lacking in the apostles' presentation that um, caused the Jerusalem apostles to, to state this? Don't know. We're not told. But um, Paul assures them that, yes, this is the very thing that I'm eager to do. What was the result of this meeting known uh, as uh, the Jerusalem Council? Well, three things. Paul's authority as an apostle was recognized, independent of the 12 Jerusalem apostles. Paul and the Jerusalem leaders demonstrated uh, complete unity and uh, fellowship with the Antioch leaders. And then that faith plus doctrine of the Judaizers, well, it was proven to be erroneous and unscriptural. Circumcision and law-keeping are not part of the gospel. These were outcomes of that Council of Jerusalem. What for us? What are we to do um, for application of what we've covered this morning? Jude wrote, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting, you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith. The faith being the doctrines of uh, Scripture, the doctrines of salvation, and certainly that of the gospel. We are to contend 
for the faith. We saw Paul contending for the faith. We are to contend for the faith. We must be courageous to confront and to correct. My friend at work last week, I was talking with, how many years have I been working with him? I'm ashamed to say. But um, finally, we were talking about the Lord Jesus. And I, I, um, I said, you know, the important thing is to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus, to know him. And um, my friend said, I try to live a good life. And I, I said, well, that's what saved people do, but that's not how people get saved. And he said, oh, uh, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Okay, what does my friend believe? What is the gospel that my friend believes? He and I are going to talk about that uh, hopefully this week. What comes out first is generally what we're really believing. You find that to be true? He, he recognized his mistake, but too late. What are you really trusting in for your salvation? I want to talk with him. The apostle Paul was willing to travel to Jerusalem potentially 16 days each way, to present his gospel to the apostles to protect the purity of the gospel, its preaching. How far are you willing to go to preserve the continued faithful preaching of the gospel? A hymn writer wrote, Give of your best to the master. Give of the strength of your youth. Throw your soul's fresh, glowing ardor into the battle for truth. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your apostles um, who are courageous in confronting error and preserving the faithful preaching of your gospel. Thank you there is a gospel and that the Lord Jesus died for our sins and was buried and rose again, sitting at your right hand. Lord, um, those of us who are here uh, and don't know you, I pray that you would have impressed on their hearts the urgency of coming to you in faith and believing on your son, the Lord Jesus. Others of us, Lord, who know you, may we be contenders. May we be those who, um, who support, who um, preserve the integrity of your preaching, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.